This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 44. I truly believe that if you tell people this is what it's going to take for you to get to the next level, this is what it's going to take for you to really be excellent at this work. I know you want to pivot here. This is the journey and the path that is going to look like. I think if you tell people that and here's what I'm going to do to help you get there, that to me is is what every employee wants. And so that to me is what building people capability looks like. What does building people capability mean to you? Why is building people capability critical to the success of your organization? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. My guest this week is Mel Steinbach. Mel is the Chief People Officer at Masterclass, where she's responsible for overseeing human resources strategy and operations, recruitment, and culture initiatives. Prior to joining Masterclass, Mel was the Chief People Officer at Cameo, And early in her career, Mel served as the Senior Vice President and Chief People Officer for McDonald's USA and was the Chief Human Resources Officer at Milken & Company. Before Mel made the transition into HR leadership roles, she spent 15 years in consumer, retail, and marketing sectors at executive search firms Highland Partners, Russell Reynolds Associates, and Spencer Stewart. Mel has a true passion for making an impact and developing people. In our conversation, Mel and I discussed how she transitioned from an executive search leader to a chief people officer, what she learned working for multinational companies as well as fast-growing startups, why building people capability is so critical to the success of a business, why she believes LinkedIn has fundamentally impacted how people manage their careers, and why learning that it's educational and entertaining is more engaging and impactful, and much more. Mel, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you? I am awesome. How are you, JP? I am terrific. I want to kick it off and talk a little bit more about your early career because you transitioned from a very successful career in executive recruiting at Russell Reynolds, Spencer Stewart, and a few others before becoming a CHRO of Milken & Company. That's a pretty credible transition from executive recruiter to CHRO. Tell us more about that. How did that transition take place? Yeah, I loved being in executive search. It was Never a dull moment. You were working with a ton of different executives at any given day. Um, I got to focus in industries that I loved, consumer marketing and retail. So everything was great. But there was this like little voice in my head that said, you can do more. And, and I don't know where I had that belief, but it was nagging at me. And when I would tell people what I did in executive search, I would say, well, I solve business problems. I just solve them through talent. And they would say, oh, that's cool. But then again, this like kind of voice of truth in my head would say, yeah, well, you solve business problems through talent replacement. And I just, I knew in my soul that 
you know, there were other ways to solve business problems through people. There were org design or compensation structures or feedback and coaching and development, you know, like true development investment. And I wanted to have access to that. So fortunately, at the time, Milliken was a, a client of mine on the search side, and they had an executive team that prioritized talent acquisition as a core skill. And I knew that one. And then they really wanted someone who was able to integrate with them, like in their strategic planning and the way that they looked at the business through the strategic lens, which is really what you do in executive search, right? You're talking to senior executives, understanding their biggest pain points as it relates to achieving their their business objectives and then mapping that to a, a talent strategy. So off I went and it's now been a decade. Um, actually, it is uh, 10 years tomorrow. That's crazy. I started there June 3rd. So 10 years tomorrow it'll be. And I would, I loved search, but I like, I really feel like I found my calling on the corporate side. Well, it sounds like you have. And what I think is so interesting, because executive recruiters, to your point, the best ones are really, really sharp business people. They're assessing executive talent all day long, which is not easy. But what I love the way you describe what you're doing with solving business problems. I don't know if every executive search partner that I've met thinks they're solving executive or business problems. They're really solving a talent challenge, finding great people. So that just tells you to think you had a business mindset from the get-go that probably really set you apart to take this big transition. Was that first year or so hard being a CHRO when you were like, oh, I've got to do compensation, there's employee relations, benefits. How did you manage that transition? It was brutal. I, I've actually never worked harder in my entire life. My, I describe my learning curve as completely vertical. But I had, I had a great team. I was able to really put together a great team. And I had an amazing coach, um, Ursi Fairbairn, I hope you're listening to this podcast. She was the former CHRO of American Express. And she was like, okay, well, we're going to turn you from a headhunter into a CHRO. So buckle up. And off we went. And I bounced a lot of things off of her. She really helped me round out my skills that I wanted to learn and I wanted to be successful. So I had like a lot of desire. And then Ursi was just super generous with me in, in helping me to to figure out how much I actually didn't know and teach me a lot of those things. Well, I love that you're sharing that because, you know, when someone takes a big chance on you like that in your career, not only do you need mentors that are willing to help you in those times of need, but also you put in the hours. And I think that's something sometimes people forget. It's like if you got this new role or new promotion you may have to say, I'm going to have to sacrifice other things for six months or a year, hopefully, but maybe six months, who knows the time period, but you have to go hard to keep up and make sure you're doing the best job you possibly can. So it sounds like obviously huge success in transitioning because you've also then went on to work at McDonald's and the lead HR for some smaller high growth startups like Masterclass, which I'm a huge, yeah. huge fan of. Thank and you. And Cameo. What have these experiences taught you about successful organizations and how they operate and how HR can add value, especially that transition from bigger companies to more smaller high growth? So here's what I would say. It doesn't matter the size of the company. Companies are all made up of humans. And so 
at the end of the day, the work is how do you get the people and the, you know, the various different humans that work in that company to all operate in a way that is both fulfilling for them and adding value to their own careers, but also adding value to the company. And that really is the work. And so you either do it for fewer people and smaller companies, but those fewer people have like much broader scopes and can like any one person can be the difference maker between success or lack of success. Or you do it for huge amounts of people where you're really working on like, how do I distill this perhaps complicated or complex message on a behavior change that we're trying to roll out? How do I distill it down to the simplest version so that the most people will understand it and do it as possible? You're right. At a smaller company, there may be 10 to 15 roles that are have outsized impact on execution of that strategy. And you've got to have A-plus talent in those roles. Whereas maybe at McDonald's, it's a different challenge completely. Which one do you prefer, a smaller company yeah. or the bigger companies? Well, I love impact. What I have learned is that the size of the company does not matter as much as the way that the company treats the role of the people organization. What I did learn at McDonald's is that it might be a very simple business, but it's a very complex business model. And working through franchisees, owner operators, different ownership structures in different parts of the world, like it makes it more complicated. And on the one hand, it is just this incredible, you know, global brand and Millions of people say that they work for McDonald's at any given point in any given day. But the truth is that the actual like McDonald's corporate employees, there there are fewer of them. And those are really the ones that you have direct control over. So if you want to learn influence, if you want to learn how to like get your message out in the most simple and effective way, go to McDonald's because you will you'll have to really do a lot of work on that. That is where I think I I really developed my skills as a communicator. I think I was I was pretty decent before then, but it really forces you to be excellent. But I think one thing that I found in a smaller company is, you know, I love the work of of HR. And you get to do more of it when you're in a smaller company. And so that is also incredibly rewarding. Thanks for sharing that. I know impact is so important to you. And it's also something you do when you're not also being a chief people officer, because I understand that you have time to invest and support other innovative startups. Can you talk to us a little bit more about some of the passion in that space and what you've been doing there? Yeah, well, this is a personal story for me, which is, I didn't have great financial education growing up. I went to a liberal arts school and I did take corporate accounting in college, but um, I just, I didn't have great financial education. And as I continued in my career, I saw a lot of my colleagues had these like side hustles or side investments. And 
And through those, they were learning a lot about venture-backed companies. They were learning about new, innovative businesses that were being started. And they were getting access to this new group of talent, you know, these like up-and-coming founders. And as I reflected on it, I was like, gosh, I like, I want that. Not, not just for me, actually, JP, but uh, one thing that I don't really publicize on my LinkedIn is that every investment I do, I do with one of my daughters. And, and I do that so that I can put my money literally where my mouth is, which is I want more women to have excellent financial education. And I want them to participate in the angel investing game as much as a lot of our male colleagues are doing it. So my daughters and I have invested in five companies now. Almost all of them are diverse founders in some way. All of them are businesses that my I have to be able to explain to my 21-year-old, 19-year-old daughters. But One thing I tell all of the founders is when I first meet with them is you are so brave. Like I am in awe of what you are doing, right? To think that you have found a problem that no one else has solved well enough, that your unique approach is going to be the way to solve it. I mean, that is just some next level bravery, in my opinion. And so I love getting access to them, learning with them and from them and getting to see these companies grow. Well, I love that you bring your daughters into the investment. That's so important. And we really do need to continue to push financial literacy and really having a seat at the table on investing and starting companies because I think female founders have an incredible point of view. You know, and you've seen Bumble and many others out there that have really had some great success because they're thinking about it totally differently than a man, obviously. And so it's great to have that perspective. But also, you can really tell your impact. And being an all founders makes sense. Working with small companies, to your point, Masterclass, Cameo, these are companies that didn't exist 10 years ago, probably. I don't know the exact date when Masterclass came into play. Eight or years Cameo. Now. Yeah. Okay. And they're incredible. They've got a vision. And I think, part of HR's role and your role is to help try to bring that to life, which is the fun part about being along for that ride with those founders. It's a great point you make around Cameo and Masterclass. Like they're both disruptors, right? They are companies that really took a very different approach to to what they saw going on. Cameo saw this opportunity where celebrities were like so distant, you know, they were like only in these like highly produced environments and they wanted to to make a celebrity more accessible so have you be able to to buy a you know a shout out a video shout out from your favorite celebrity and it's very disruptive to that whole like notion of celebrity and fame and the monetization of it and i think like some people think oh it's just so fun but it it is actually like this really interesting disruptive technology to that whole ecosystem. And similarly, you know, Masterclass, I think the learning industry is like a hundred billion dollar industry. And Masterclass just had this incredible insight that learning should be entertaining. And if we put as much effort into the 
entertainment value as we did into the educational value, how much better that would be for all learners, you know, not just young learners or young adult learners, but older learners, right, who are like maybe hadn't been in in classes per se for for years. And so I think they both are pretty disruptive in their own right. And and it's been really, really amazing to be part of both of them. Really, really interesting to hear you talk about how they're disrupting the industries. And one thing I would say about Masterclass, which I think obviously the videos are just done so well, but similar to Cameo, because you're bringing some accessibility. If I can listen to Steve Martin talk about being an actor or Natalie Portman, it's like, wow, I can learn from the best, right? And I think the internet and just what's happened over the last 10 years, even this podcast, people get a chance to meet Mel and hear about you. It's an incredible experience. So I love what you're doing, the passion you have, and I think your career choices have been just right on the money for what who you are and what you're doing. So I love that. You're also really passionate about people development. In your words, what does the phrase building people capability mean to you? Well, I I believe truly in the goodness of people. I really do. And and because of that, I believe that people want to do well in their jobs. And I believe that people want to grow in their companies and in their careers. And I think so often we underestimate the work that it takes to really build a capability or we overestimate it. And so then we don't invest in it. And if you come from the starting place where I am, which is I believe in solving business problems through people, people development being a key one of those. And I believe fundamentally in the fact that people want to do well in their jobs, then I think that you can see why I truly believe that if you tell people this is what it's going to take for you to get to the next level, this is what it's going to take for you to really be excellent at this work. I know you want to pivot here. This is the journey and the path that is going to look like. I think if you tell people that and and then you say, and here's what I am prepared to do as your manager, as your people business partner, as your VP of talent, whatever it is, here's what I'm going to do to help you get there. That to me is, is what every employee wants. And so that to me is what building people capability looks like. Terrific answer. A lot of times in HR, we talk about people owning their own careers. Yeah. And I'm curious, how do you feel about that statement? What's your take on it? I believe two things, two truths about this, JP. Number one, nobody's going to care about your career as much as you do. And that is just like the sooner everybody accepts that, the better we're all going to be. And the way that we said this at McDonald's was your path is yours to own, but you don't walk it alone. And what we meant by that, and that was like, that took a lot of distilling and many thanks to the team that I had that helped to come up with that one kind of true statement on our point of view on that. But what we meant by that was 
look, you get to own your career. You get to decide if you want to pivot from marketing into operations. You get to decide if you want to go from HR in corporate to HR in the field. You get to decide if you want to get there quickly or slowly. And once you make those decisions, like we're going to help you. We will be honest with you. Hey, I know you want to become, you know, the CEO of McDonald's in five years. That's pretty unlikely, you know, or, hey, I know that you think that you would be the best VP of marketing for Switzerland, but you don't speak French or German. So that's going to be a really difficult role for you to get unless you start learning those languages fluently, right? And so part of it is that it is your path is yours to own. You choose. You choose what. You choose how fast. And then we are going to do everything that we can to support it. Because the truth is, the truth is that there was a time 20, 30 years ago where uh, you didn't own your career. Like, that statement would have never been said because you were seen as like part of a corporate entity and you just knew that you were going to choose to go work at a place and that you were going to kind of get put on their, you know, corporate treadmill and they were going to move you along. That changed, right? And now we are in an environment where people every day get a ping from LinkedIn telling them, Based on your background, you would be in the top 10% of candidates for that VP job. And so it has really fundamentally changed the employer-employee relationship as it relates to careers, because I think people are saying, hey, I'm going to own my own career without you people. I'm going to own it right on out the front door. And so if companies don't want to do that, then they have to engage and they have to say, hey, here's what you get from building your career with us. So I think it has up into the job market for sure. But that's really more about how you find the next job. When you think about owning your career inside the company, it's still to your point, you own that path and you have to carve your own path with making a reputation internally, figuring out how you can get the next promotion or that next role, building that credibility. That doesn't change. It definitely well, has I would, can I just say, yeah, I think LinkedIn has upended the kind of talent promotion market too. Like it's not just when you're looking for a job, it's when you're not looking for a job necessarily. Let's say that I am just absolutely thrilled with my job at Masterclass as I am. But if I start getting you know, a ping from LinkedIn every day telling me that I would be in the top 10% of candidates for a much larger job, that's going to turn my head. It's also going to make me say to my boss, hey, you know, I'm actually, and now that compensation is transparent, which I absolutely love and support, but when our teams are getting pinged with that information, they are now saying, Hey, like I should be getting promoted because LinkedIn is telling me that I would be a top 10% candidate for a VP job. And by the way, that job is paying 
you know, X plus 20% of what I'm making today. And so it's changing it for, for career development and talent development as well, not just for talent acquisition, in my opinion. What you're also talking about, and I remember seeing you give a speech a long time ago, maybe a year or so ago, about transparency. Yeah. And I think what LinkedIn and really social media and obviously pay transparency is that people now see what's happening a lot more that was sort of behind closed doors. Someone got promoted, to your point, you're in the top 10%. I mean, you never had that information before. Yeah. And that transparency can, that knowledge can be power, right? Used properly. Yeah. I think it has created an external market force putting pressure on organizations to to really articulate what the promotion cycle is going to be, like how frequently it's going to be, what's it going to be based on, like how can I depend on it? Because if you don't deliver on it, right, to the point that I made last year on trust and transparency, like if you don't deliver on it, you are going to lose trust immediately and they know what the alternative looks like because there's so much transparency in what's available in the market. I understand Masterclass is launching a new program called Masterclass at Work, which I'm pretty excited about. Sounds like it's for the enterprise. I would love if you could just tell us a little more about it and what the early results are of from clients yeah. who are using it. Let me just go back in time a little bit. In both at Milliken and at McDonald's, I had this incredible opportunity to build really custom leadership programs. And they were both amazing, like two of the highlights of my career without doubt. And, and they were really impactful for the people who were in them. The problem was that they weren't incredibly scalable. They were very, very intense in-person programs and, and they were expensive. And so when I understood Masterclass's aspiration to bring like all of this amazing content that they have developed over the past eight years on the consumer side and start to develop specific content for the enterprise side, I thought, oh my gosh, this is going to be a game changer because I would have loved to have had that in both of my previous roles. Because to me, it was like how I didn't want to sacrifice quality for frequency and masterclass is collapsing that, right? So you can get high quality and frequency. And what we have done is we have combined what we know about entertaining content. Our, our chief content officer was at HBO for many years, right? So really understands like what great content development looks like from that perspective. Our VP of creative is the former head of documentaries from A24 and worked on documentaries at Netflix as well. So we like, we have this creative genius team that is really helping us deliver on that entertaining component. But then we also have curriculum development. And so we are marrying, hey, this is what we know is like going to, you know, keep people engaged. And how do we structure it in a way so that they learn what they need to learn? And it's that combination that we're bringing to enterprises that they are, they're really excited about. And because it is built with this 
this real emphasis on the entertainment and production value, people watch it more. So people are spending three and four times more on the masterclass platform than they are on some of the other competing platforms, which is, you know, if you are an L&D leader, like engage is part of like, that's the first level that you've got to cross. That's really, really, really impressive. And I think when the content is so good, I could see not only is it going to be great for individual development, maybe on my own kind of career path, but building into leadership development programs and having conversations around that content because it's great content that can be very bite-sized and relevant. And I think people are really more engaging with it. So I'm excited to see that come out and see the continued success of Masterclass. I'm just a huge, huge fan. Thank you. Like I was saying earlier, for our summer, my kids who are 12 and 10, my wife and I said, you have to watch a master class every day. I don't care which one you pick, but you have to pick something on home just because we think it's so important that they're continuing to see different things and pushing themselves and, and looking at new ideas and getting interested in something that maybe they never thought they would do. I love that so much, JP. I like want to make a commercial about you. But that is, you know, like that insight is is really interesting. First of all, we are masterclass at work is already out. If we started about three years ago, we work with half of the Fortune 100 already. So we're, we're out there and we are just working now to continue to evolve the content. Uh, because what we're seeing is there's some people who are kind of like you and your wife, right? We, we really just want you to keep those learning muscles going. Like we just want to build curiosity and, and learning. So whatever you learn is going to be good. And we have professional services firms that are shocked when the number one class that their employees are watching is the sleep science class. It's not just, are you, are you learning like negotiation skills, which we have, but it is, you know, are you learning anything? And that I think like in this environment where we are all prioritizing curiosity, it's like remembering that you have to continue to build that. Um, so we're seeing that actually on the on the corporate side that there's a lot of people who are like, we just we just want our employees learning anything and masterclasses for them. What masterclass does is it already provides enough curation because it's so high quality that that they can let their teams loose on it. What's your favorite masterclass? Oh gosh, I like to hear about somehow the people create music or the screenwriters. So a lot more in the entertainment space. My wife and I have watched the sleep one, but finding two things that we both like is very difficult, as you can imagine. So a lot of times it can be who the person is that's driving my interest as yeah. well. Like whoever that celebrity might be that I'm really curious about and learning more and how yeah. they operate. One of the things that I have been surprised by in the library is how many leadership lessons are in the non-leadership classes. <laughs> if you want to learn about resilience, like take Steph Curry's class. It's so heartfelt and so honest. It's really amazing. And I was talking to Angela Lane. I think you know Angela, our colleague at AbbVie, and she was sharing how much she loves Gordon Ramsay and and the lessons she's learned from from his class. I think that's another thing. The educational lessons don't have to only come from the kind of the traditional places. So true. Learning can happen anywhere. And learning, I think, is the foundation for all of our development, which is why I'm a big fan of Masterclass. 
and the quality of content you produce. I also think about for HR leaders, right? Next generation HR leaders, we often kind of forget about our own development. We're always thinking about developing our leaders, developing the business. What's your advice for next generation HR leaders when it comes to their own professional development? If you are not curious, you will fail. So just keep learning. Like truly, I credit my early career in executive search where I got exposed to so many different business models and ways to solve business problems. The way that Walmart, who was my client for many years, solved a merchandising problem was very different than the way that Dick's Sporting Goods did it. And so the way that I I always approach problems from this kind of assortment perspective, right? Like getting the strategic foundation, which to me means like crowdsourcing a lot of information. And I think HR leaders over the past, particularly over the past three years, have been asked to solve problems that they had never, ever thought of before. And so I think that like key for me has always been just like remaining incredibly curious and and I think that is something that future HR leaders are going to have to continue to have. They're going to have to continue to to really stay at pace or ahead of their employees on what's coming down the pipe. And one of the things that I have learned in, in working with the Cameo team and the Masterclass team, where we have a slightly younger population, employee population, is, you know, you got to stay culturally with it too. Like you got to stay culturally curious. You can't be asleep on all of the cultural cues that are going on because it will make you seem out of touch very, very quickly. Mel, last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR in the next five to 10 years? I think it's critical. And I think the function is going to be mission critical to the work in companies going forward. I think we've already become way more important. But I almost want us to hold that word critical as an aspiration for all of us. Like when you are running a function that is critical to the business, you aren't like wishy-washy with your metrics. You aren't like so-so with your data. You are impeccable with those numbers. When you are like mission critical to an organization, you don't go off chasing every shiny object that comes in front of you and chasing squirrels like a puppy. You make sure that things that you implement are tried and true and tested and you are rigorous in your testing. And I think that when we face criticism as a function, it's because we have not used all of the, the data at, at our disposal in a way that really speaks to our users, our employees, our decision makers, and that we don't use behavioral science enough. We kind of chase all of these fads and trends in an HR and our employees end up getting whiplash. And so the word I hope that we all embrace going forward into the future is critical and seeing ourselves as leading this critical function and, and really holding ourselves up to the standard that 
that then brings with them. So insightful, mission critical is HR's role. I love the fact that we should embrace that and think about our role differently because we are so critical to the organization's success. Mel, thank you so much for being on the future of HR. You rocked it. We're big fans of Masterclass and just really appreciate you being on the, on the show today. Thanks so much. It was a blast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Mel for sharing her thoughts on how to build people capability. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with David Dotson. David is a Stanford University Graduate School Business Faculty member where he guides students in tactical execution. He's also a serial entrepreneur who has operated six companies as CEO or executive chairman. And he has since served on as a board member of over 40 companies and is an active investor in over 150 businesses. David will join us next week to share his insights from his new book, The Manager's Handbook, Five Simple Steps to Build a Team, Stay Focused, Make Better Decisions, and Crush Your Competition. This is a must-listen episode for all HR leaders and people leaders in general, as David provides proven, practical, and tactical actions that will help you take your management skills to the next level. Thanks again for listening to the Future of HR and being part of our community.